Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and each week on this podcast, I talk to some of the most fascinating people on the planet in all areas of life, from mindset to fitness to spirituality, and of course, business. Look, I believe you deserve success in all the areas of your life, not only business. But before we get into today's show, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard experience. This year, we're going to be going to Mykonos and Marrakesh. In these experiences, I have hand-selected a group of high-performing business people who are seeking more balance, connection, and they want to celebrate their wins as a reward for the hard work that they put in. If you want someone to curate once-in-a-lifetime experiences and force you to play more, rush over to workhardplayhardexperience.com. Fill out an application so we can jump on a discovery call to see if this is a good fit for you. And remember, excuses are over. It's time to live. For me, and with my background, it was pretty easy for anyone to just kind of go and, hey, I'm going to do this on my own. Like, anyone could do that. But when you really want to kind of grow a team and make this thing scalable and sustainable and eventually exitable, that you can't do it all on your own. Every single thing that's being marketed well in our world is it's the brand was built first. So there's certain things that it's really about the feeling. And if you can connect that feeling with the customer, then they're going to choose your brand, your product, your service time after time after time. So as you grow and as you scale and as you bring more people onto your team, they know that standard, which then lends to customer service also. And they can then fulfill it, fill it, fill it. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. Today on the show is Candy Valentino. Candy is a 20-year veteran in business, a nonprofit expert, and a no-BS speaker. She's originally from rural northeastern Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And Candy started her first business just out of high school with only a high school diploma. She has started scaled and successfully sold businesses in service, e-commerce, and product manufacturing. I loved this interview. We talked about how she's leveraging Airbnb to create wealth, how her nonprofits are creating deep meaning and fulfillment in her life, and how she trains her money mindset. You are going to love this interview. She is a force of nature that will get you going. Please enjoy this conversation with Candy Valentino. Candy, welcome to the show. Rob, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. I am super excited to have you on the show. You know, our goal in these episodes is to spark entrepreneurs to place as much focus on their life as they do their business. And you really are crushing it in all areas. So I'm excited to dig into all parts that is candy. Well, it's been so cool because I know we have some overlapping circles of friends. So I'm really excited to uh, to be on and and officially get to know you a little better. So awesome! You know, pot, it's funny because 
for one reason or another, and I can't quite figure out why, but I wind up connecting to people at a much deeper level through a podcast than I ever would at dinner. I guess, I guess it's permission for me to be able to ask all kinds of things, yeah. which is which is like weird if you're sitting at dinner. Right, exactly. And when do you actually just get that undivided attention at dinner anyway? So yeah, that's awesome. Okay. So you have uh, 20 years of background in building businesses and creating brands, but all entrepreneurs have to start someplace and you started in Pittsburgh, PA. And I thought maybe you could describe what it was like growing up with parents that were so young when they had you. I mean, your dad was 19, your mom was 16. And, you know, I was telling you earlier that I've got a five-year-old child and I'm 53. I, I can't imagine what that was like. So I guess the question is, in what ways do you think that that informed who you are today? It was, it's really interesting because, you know, I too, I could not imagine having kids. I mean, I'm 40 and, or I know, gosh, I just turned 41. And it's just to me to think about that at 19 and 16, like just to, to have that news and then have to deal with it, like what the process would be going on. And the most interesting thing that I would say is the dynamic of myself with my parents is like, we kind of grew up together. You know, like if you, if you were interviewing my mom, she would say that like, it was kind of like having a live baby doll. (laughs) Like she, went from, you know, taking tests in ninth grade to finding out that she was going to be pregnant. And now she had this living thing to take care of. And for my dad, it really helped. It really made him just really step into a provider role. And he was already a hard worker, but he just was just whatever it took in order to make it work to provide for his family. So what I really learned without realizing it as a kid, but I'm able to reflect back now is that I had two parents that did whatever it took to make it work, like in every aspect, like to keep this living thing that they just brought home from the hospital alive, but then also to do whatever they needed to do in order to make money, in order to have a place to live, like just to get thrown into all of that. And it's kind of relates back to our business too, right? Like when we first start a business, it's like, we don't know what we're doing. We don't have all the answers, but we know that we're going to figure it out and we're going to make it work. And I, I feel like that's pretty much what they had to do at such young age. Yeah, you know, uh, Marie Forleo says everything is figure outable, mm-hmm. and I just I love that quote. You know, your your uh, your parents were hard workers. Your dad was a mechanic. Your mom was a cleaning lady. Knowing what you know now, if you had to go back and whisper in their ear and give them some business advice, what would you have told them? Mm. So the thing that even as I was as I was in high school that I always told my dad was that he needed to surround himself with more people and scale. And my it was funny, we just were talking about this over the weekend is sometimes in business, we feel like we are the ones that need to do it all. And when you have that feeling or that belief, you really are holding yourself back from being able to grow and expand and have an even bigger business and a bigger impact and more income. And so for him, what I would being 20 years into this, looking back, I would say, dad, you need to hire more people. You need to find more people that are passionate about cars and that do things well and have integrity and hire them on and be able to grow this. Um, and the same thing with my mom. They're both um, just self, you know, like they're self-employed. They're solopreneurs as the word is now. Um, but being able to expand that and having more of a team and hiring people, that would have been the number one growth that they both could have had in their businesses. 
Why do you think most people struggle in that area? Why do you think that they all think they have to do everything from emptying the garbage to, you know, filing the taxes? Is it, is it just sort of like a mentality or is it just that they've looked around and saw other people doing it? Where do you think that comes from? I think that there's multiple reasons. I think one, it's actually easier to just do it all yourself. Mm. You know, there's a whole other skill set that comes into play when you need to hire and lead and depend on other people. And I think a lot of times people don't, they don't take that extra step to develop themselves of what do I need to do to really be able to trust other people? What do I need to do to really lead people? You know, how can I create this? It's, it's really the next level of entrepreneurship and business. It's, you know, for me and with my background, it was pretty easy for anyone to just kind of go and, hey, I'm going to do this on my own. Like anyone could do that. But when you really want to kind of grow a team and make this thing scalable and sustainable and eventually exitable, that you can't do it all on your own. Like you just mm. never will. And so I think the other, the other piece of that is, and this might challenge some of your listeners, but it's pride. I think some entrepreneurs, some solopreneurs have a little bit of ego and a little bit of pride and they like the fact of, oh, I got to do this all on my own. You know, it kind of gives them that sense of, you know, I don't know, belief that they can handle it all. But really that's not the best way to run a business. Like the best way is to grow that and to surround yourself with other people because if not, you're going to, you're going to put yourself under a plateau and you're not going to be able to break through. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, you know, you get the idea, you know, I want to be a hair cutter or I want to own the pizza store or whatever, but really what you wind up doing is making pizzas and cutting hair and you're not leading a team or you're not opening up multiple shops. And you're right. It is a completely different skill set that you have to dig into to learn leadership and to learn how to, you know, uh, create systems and operations to have a business function independent of you. Um, so that's, that's a great answer. I hadn't looked at it that way. So you started really young at, uh, at 19, you decided that you were going to open up your own spa business, which is a crazy thing for a 19 year old to come up with. (laughs) And you were, you know, you're sitting there at your kitchen table and you decided, I'm going to call this thing Platinum Salon and Spa. And it wound up becoming one of the top spas in Pittsburgh, won a bunch of awards, including you know Best Day Spa and Best Salon. What was the playbook for you to be that successful at such a young age in a business that you would never even think, or at least I wouldn't, would work in Pittsburgh? Yeah. So for me, this, this was not my chosen path. I actually was... I was a criminology major. I got accepted for a scholarship to my first choice school. I was going to go that route until I sat and toured a school and was like, oh my gosh, there's no way I can do this. Like everybody just wants to have fun and party and drink. And I'm like, I want to go out. I want to do something. And I am not going to sit here for four years and do this. Like to me, it was all about like getting it done, getting something quick. And so choosing a salon and spot wasn't something that it was like, oh, this is my dream. It was something that it was the shortest path to get me where I wanted, which was the furthest away from poverty that I could possibly get. (laughs) So for me, it was, you know, what can I do in the fastest amount of time what can I really serve people and and show up? And so obviously my dad being in a service-based business, that was something that I'd kind of had experience with since I was you know five years old. I was dropped off at his auto mechanic shop and was there every single day of my life after school until he left or my mom left at 9, 10 o'clock at night and repeat for the next till I was 16. So I had that experience with working with customers and answering the phone and doing all of that. 
So it was almost just like a natural progression to be like, okay, let's find the service-based business. What can I, I'm going to go get this license so that I can do this within six months and let's build this building while I'm getting this license so that I can get that done. And when I saw in our area, there wasn't anything like it. And I was on a trip to New York City and I saw all these spas and I'm like, wait a minute, these these women, these people are loving it and we don't have something like that. So I saw a need in the market and I thought there are enough people that I know from my dad's business that would enjoy something like this. And I just don't think that it's available. So let's give it a go. So that was pretty much why I landed on that um, business. And for me, it was never about... like I'm the opposite of the solopreneur. Like It wasn't about me getting into a business because I was passionate about making pizzas or passionate about being a chef. So I opened a restaurant. It was the opposite. Like It was passionate about being a restaurant owner. So you open the restaurant and then you hire the best chef. Like I was passionate about business and then I hired all of the right people in order to do the things that they loved and gave them that environment to thrive. Yeah, I love that. Um, I, you know, I often, I often get confused in this area because sometimes you can look at a space and say, well, there's nothing like it in the space. So, you know, the market needs it. Other times you can look at it and go, there's nothing like it. There's a reason because mm-hmm. nobody wants it. Right. How do you differentiate, you know, how to make those decisions? I mean, was there like market testing or was it, do you, do you operate just by gut? And I guess at 19 years old, it was gut, right? It was a lot of gut, but it was also identifying the type of people that were utilizing those services and purchasing that. So even if it's a product, right? So depending on what your listeners may be thinking about, to me, it's about having a plan also. Like a lot of people just kind of jump into something with their gut, but they don't have a plan. And sometimes that can lead to pain. But I feel if you can at least test the market to know that this one product or this one service is being bought or consumed by this type of person or this audience in another area, and those same types of people, demographics, genders, age, are also in your area, well, then it kind of leads you to believe that it would also work well in yours. So in my case, I'm like, okay, so I have all of these people that have this you know, income, they're doing these types of biz- you know, jobs, whatever. And that's the same type of people that are in the cities purchasing these products and these services. So it would kind of make me feel like that would work. And then it's your instinct after that. Got it. Um... You know, looking back on that 20-year period that you were in there, uh, is there anything that stands out for you as maybe some key decisions or approaches that you took that were different enough at the time that led to that sort of year-on-year growth? One, it was so... I was so obsessive about it. Like I was so obsessive about the growth, about hiring more people about being having more impact in their life creating more jobs um it was really that and and i think that there's also a lot of grace involved in that of course too but really being obsessive about the growth like loving i loved it like i loved running businesses like it wasn't necessarily just about the day to day of the making the pizzas right it was actually like all of the pieces of being an entrepreneur. And, you know, for me too, it was also working relentless. Like nobody was outworking me. Nobody was outrunning me in that space, in that time, at that point. So I think that that has a lot of play to do with it. Um, you know, making sure that you're willing to outrun, outlast any other person in your competition, the statistics are then on your side that you're going to be successful. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about sort of that hustle that you had. You know, after 20 years, you decided, you know, I'm done. I want to sell this. And you sell it to your friend, Heidi. Can you, can you take me back to that time in your life and maybe tell me the story of uh, how you were thinking about purpose in your life and, you know, whether material things really mattered and, you know, was it all cracked up to be what you thought it was going to be? Maybe sort of paint a picture of that decision to let the business go or sell it. Yeah. So actually that started way back. So I was 24, um, 23, four years in, I was 23. I started, I started investing in real estate because I could see that like, I didn't just want one stream of income and I want to diversify and, you know, have some residual income coming in. So I started buying properties um, in my area so that I could kind of just buy up the street so that everything was kind of close to it's like, you know, have headquarters and can manage everything. And I bought a few and then I bought a building at the end of the street and it was like an old bar <laughs> event space. And I was like, you know, hit the goals, did the thing, hired the people, everything was going really well. And I was driving by that building and I was like, man, what am I going to do at that building? You know? And and it was like a voice that like we're talking came up behind and said, put your animal shelter there. And prior to that point, like I wasn't really thinking about putting an animal shelter there, but I did have that feeling, like you said, Rob, where it's like, is this all that it's cracked up to be? Like you get to the certain point and you have all of these quote things and you know, you, you have all the achievements and the stuff that you went out to achieve. And then it's like, is that it? And so at that same time is when I was really processing what to do with that building. And so that is what came through um, and really is what kind of shifted my whole focus from just growth and drive and business to really being also very heavily contribution and mission-based. All right. I want to touch on real estate for a little bit. Sure. So you spent some time, I guess, during that 20-year period. When, how old were you when you bought your first property? 20. Well... Outside of the building that we were, the salon and spa I was in, 23. Amazing. I mean, that is freaking amazing. 23 years old, first property. And were you, were you of the mind of flipping it or, you know, did you buy multiple properties after that? Talk a little bit about how you think about real estate and maybe some, you know, where you are now in the world of real estate. Yes. Okay. So I love real estate. This is like a whole other topic, but, Mm -hmm. um, so actually, and if you think, so 23 was my first investment property. Like I specifically bought that to invest the 20 was my very first property. Um, but 23. So for me, I just could see that, you know, one, I'm a creative one. I like things to, you know, look better, obviously the salon and spa, the transformation. So I kind of just got into real estate thinking that it was between the assets, the residual income, and then the transformation. And it was really just my only hobby. Like I'd never had a hobby. I would never was into sports. I never really did anything. That was my thing. And so for me, I just would research properties same thing like I did in business. I would look at all of the different properties in the area. I would see what those square footage and in that market, in that area or that city or that you know couple streets were bringing in. And then I would really watch for either foreclosures or short sales or estates or um, sheriff sales, like whatever the, the case would be. Or somebody that was just, I knew they were moving, you know, because small town, you tend to know a lot of people. So I would start buying those. And it was really just like the deal. It's like, I always say, it's, it's great to get a great deal on shoes, if you're, <laughs> but it's really awesome to get a great deal on a building. So I would buy those and then fix them up 
And then I actually started with rentals and I was like, oh, I do not like being a landlord. Like, do not call me when the toilet isn't working. Like, I just don't want those calls. So then I started flipping and it was really through my finding out that I didn't like being a landlord is what led me into flipping. And so then I started buying properties, fixing them up, putting some money into them, and then selling them for a profit. And I'm like, whoa, this is really fun. And so I've done that, you know, several dozen times um, over the last... I've never counted them up. So I really don't know. Somebody just asked me this recently, but I really don't know how many flips I've done. But I would say, you know, 25 to 40 or so just as like a hobby. And then recently that's become more of a part of my business just because of not having the salon and spa or any of the other businesses anymore. You know, it's amazing. Some people do stamp collecting as a hobby. I mean, that's, (laughs) I mean, that's freaking, it's unbelievable. So, okay. So you flip. So when you're flipping, do you have a particular criteria that you look for? In other words, do you want something that is like, you know, a $200,000 house that you could sell within three months? Like what, how are you, how do you think about it? If you were to go out today, what would you be looking for? Okay. So today is a lot different than what I used to do. When I used to flip, I I did have a specific price point that I liked um, because of being in that Pittsburgh area. So I always picked the specific price point that I was really comfortable and knew. And then as that got boring for me, I upped it. And then I was doing like, you know, 750 to million dollar flips. And and in in that area, that's, you know, they might sell six houses in that price point um, in a six-month time. Now, what I go out and look for is something kind of a little different. So nowadays, it's more about like, because the market's so great, so you really have to be smart and you really have to shop. And so for me, I'm always looking in a specific area all the time. In Arizona, it's a little different. Like We have pockets of area that are really built up and people really love, but it's landlocked. So nobody else can build houses in these certain zip codes, all they can do is either tear one down, build a new one, or renovate. So if you're in an area and you look at all the houses on the market and you see a similarity, like for me, I look in all of this, like there was, you know, maybe two dozen houses that all needed renovated and they were all around the same price. But I knew that if I bought one and I invested a certain amount of money, I would be able to then flip that because it's going to stand out above the competition. So the way I work it now is I look at how many months is that renovation going to take me? Because I don't care if it's going to take three months or 12 months, as long as my return per month is the same. So if I'm looking for a $20,000 per month return on that investment, well, then for three months, it's got to net me 60000 And if I'm going to hold it longer, then it's got to be a six-figure, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so to me, it's not necessarily about one thing because I enjoy the differences of, you know, I've done, I did a 14 bedroom nursing home and turned it into a single family house that was a million dollars. Like, so I've done unique things that makes me excited. Cause again, if it's a hobby, you have to have fun with it. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. um, now it's just a little different. It's more about the return that I want per month of my time and per month of my money being tied up into that house. So are you looking at this point in your career to do one or two a year or do you don't really set a goal and it just sort of happens the way it happens? This point in my life, I'm actually doing Airbnbs. So I actually, uh, that's where I just left to come do this podcast. I um, just bought another Airbnb property. And so for me, and again, it was a dated property in a specific price range that's really close to this like Mecca that everybody loves. So everybody wants to be there because it's less than a mile away from where everyone wants to go. And 
I update the whole thing. So there's not a ton of like massive work like I can do in a flip with tearing down walls and expanding kitchens and bathrooms. This actually had great bones. It was just, it needed brought up from 1995 to 2020. So I was, you know, changing out all the light fixtures, ripping out all the floors, redoing all the bathrooms, but the plumbing and the guts of the place are good. So actually my contractor's they drove out from Pennsylvania to do a couple projects with me. So they're here right now. Um, and so we put a lot of like cool elements into the house. And then we listed on Airbnb and RBVO and people can then rent it because your day rate for an Airbnb property or a daily vacation rental is going to be higher than if you're a landlord and you're just renting it. Um, so I kind of like to have a mix in the portfolio where I'm just having a property that's going to be a true flip and it's just going to be a turn. And then these Airbnb properties, which are great because in an Airbnb, if the market resets or something happens in the real estate, you know, it's been pushing up in this economy. If something happens, people are still going to be traveling to these specific areas in the country. You're still going to be able to rent. And then even if you don't have, if the tourism kind of takes a hit because of the economy, well, now so are the homeowners. So now homeowners aren't going to have the equity to be able to buy. Now you can actually turn those properties into true holds for um, rentals, for year-long rentals. And then as the market pushes down further, you can then buy more up. So that's kind of... I love that. So you're literally leveraging technology because you know that if you're within a mile of... Where's this particular one? What's the Mecca that everybody wants to be around? So here in Arizona, there's um, there's two big areas. There's the Old Town, it's called. And then there's Kierland and Scottsdale Quarter. And so I like to buy everything that's within a mile of each of those so that people can walk or bike or take a run. And you know, that you're just, you're good. Cause you've got JW Marriott, you've got Westin's, you've got all the great resort properties that are there. So conferences are going to be going in there. You know, people are always going to be traveling to those areas. I love that. This, this is such a smart idea because now if somebody's just starting out, they can take that principle and they can say, okay, well, I know that everybody wants to be in this area. I'm going to find something within a mile or two. I'm going to look at what the mortgage is on it. Look at what the day rate is. I can do a little bit of research on Airbnb and see what other properties are there. See a way that I can do it better and potentially create some passive income uh, for myself. So that's, yeah. that's incredible. Now, do you have, um, as part of your... Um, I know you've got a lot of entrepreneurial services and offerings for people. Do you uh, help train people in the world of real estate or is that just a hobby personally? It's truly just a hobby, but I have been asked about doing that for a while. Um, Mm -hmm. And it it really, I just didn't have the bandwidth with all the other things that I had going on and expanding the nonprofit and stuff. So it's not something I've ever done, but it's something that I really enjoy. And so I like, I just enjoy having conversations about it with people. And, but it is something that I would kind of, perhaps be interested in in the future because I don't think there's enough females that are really talking about it um, as far as like how you can really create wealth and assets and why it's not just like, you know, being a self-employed or being an entrepreneur or owning a business is great, but you're still at some level, you're trading time for money. When you can have a wealth, a portfolio that your money is making money on itself and you're literally at the beach. Like you didn't have to create something in order for those chings to come in. Like that's true residual income. That's true building wealth. And that's making your money work for you because you know that it's only going to collect a certain percentage in the market. And it keeps you... Like you have more control of it. Like I would rather go into say Santa Monica or Venice, Venice and buy some properties and do an Airbnb and then 
if something happens or it doesn't go as well, at least I know that I controlled it and I made the wrong decision. I didn't research it enough. I didn't do my homework. Not just that the market tanked because of the you know, bird flu or whatever the latest um, the virus is going around. So I know, uh, you know, what's interesting, I live in Hermosa Beach and um, in LA. And I believe that in my area, either in my area or right next door in Manhattan Beach, I think there are some laws that prohibit um, Airbnbs from yes. going, right? So yes. talk, talk to me about those concerns. Oh yeah. So you definitely have to do your research. I mean, most HOAs, like, so um, for example, like I live in an HOA, so it's like a gated community. They don't, you can't have Airbnbs in there. So there are a lot of laws and there's also more and more like high end cities that are cracking down on it. Now I personally, I've been doing the Airbnb game since 2015 or 16, something like that. And it has been wonderful. Like I have had the coolest people, like I've had repeat customers. I've like connected people all over the world that have come and stayed like frequently at the properties when they're back in the town. So I personally have had great experiences. Now that's not to say that I know that there are other places in the world that people don't have the best experiences or, you know, you live next door to somebody that has an Airbnb and there's, you know, 12 guys coming in for a bachelor party or whatnot. You know, you hear the horror story. So you just got to make sure that you do your homework because what you don't want, which I have done, is buy a property and not read the CC and the um, conditions, the the covenants of the property and the restrictions and be into a position where you have a property and you're not allowed to Airbnb it, which that's happened. But again, if you're in the right area, then you just flip it and sell it and no harm, no foul. You know, it's interesting. I just spent uh, a couple of months. I run a, uh, I do a mastermind, and uh, the last one we did was in Italy. And uh, I, I fell in love with Florence. And you know, I was like, well, maybe I'll, I'll get a place here and I'll rent a place. You know, because which would allow me to sort of go back and forth whenever yeah. I wanted to. And uh, I was talking to one of the real estate agents there, and he said rentals are so difficult now because of Airbnb. I said, what do you mean? He said, well. It's it's almost impossible to throw it throw somebody out for not paying rent in Italy. It goes back to like you know it's hundreds of years of Catholic you know sort of rule where they you know the tenant was just always protected. Mm-hmm. It takes um, it's something like a year and a half or two years of oh. non payment to get them out. It's really oh my crazy. Gosh. Yeah, so like ninety percent in Florence of uh, of everything that you can rent is Airbnbs now. He yeah. said because with Airbnb the laws don't apply. That's right. So you know, so it's it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting world, and I'm spending so much time on this because so many of my listeners ask me questions about real estate, Airbnbs, things like that. And I frankly don't know anything about it. So I'm going to be your first student when you do decide. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I would would actually suggest that, you know, find a place in Italy and, you know, I don't know the laws as far as purchasing, but it would be advantageous to buy something. If I don't know, you know, if Americans are able to buy in Italy or how that works. Yeah. So, I mean, buy something. And then now you have like, see, that's how this all started for me was I wanted a house in Arizona, but I couldn't move here. So I was because of my responsibilities and my businesses. So I was like, well, I'll just buy something. Thing, and then I'll start airbnb it. And then I was like, oh my gosh, like not only... And it was a cash house. And now I had cash flow coming in from a house that I was vacationing from. So it's like once you then... And then now you can take that money. So if you, know, you go debt-free and you buy a house with cash, even if it's something small that you can afford now to your listeners, you know, and then now you're actually using that in some other, say, California, where you want to have a, a live someday or have a house someday. Well, then you buy it. And when you go there, now you get to stay in it for free 
and you have cash flow coming back to you that the market's not going to be able to give you. And now you also have the appreciation on the asset. So as the market goes up, and especially now rates are absolutely insane. So if you have if anyone's listening that's looking to invest, like rates right now, like I think it's a 2.265 or 2.65% on a 15 year is like absolutely insane. It's mind blowing. Makes me want to buy like 20 properties. But um, so it's such a great time right now for people to be able to have, you know, their money work for them. I love that. We're going to be going uh, back to Italy and we're going to look in, um, in Tuscany for a villa. And, uh, I think, uh, I think maybe what we'll do is we'll find something, pay for, pay cash for it, do an Airbnb on it. Yeah. And then when we decide to do, you know, six months there, six months in LA, um, we'll have a place that's all paid for. That's right. Absolutely. I love that. Yeah. I want to talk to you a little bit about branding. Um, where do you think entrepreneurs go wrong? when it comes to branding and everybody's got sort of a different opinion of what branding means. And maybe you can sort of describe um, your position on it or your definition of it and where you think people go wrong. Mm, It's a great question too. Um, So branding for me is something that you create that has a life and a pulse beyond yourself. It's something that stands for something, it creates a feeling. When somebody hears that name or sees that logo, it actually resonates with them and creates a feeling. I think that so often people are so focused on sales and they're not focused on service. And because of that, they jump out of the gate so quick and they don't actually take the time to plan a brand and what they want their business to really stand for. Like, you know, if we think of some of the most amazing brands that there are, like the Ritz Carlton and Disney, like every time you see those brands, they create a feeling. And even though they're very different, right? Disney's very family oriented. The Ritz Carlton isn't necessarily, it's just more luxury, high end, most amazing hotels or the Four Seasons. And they create this like amazing standard that you know you're going to achieve and you're going to have when you go and you go there. And it's the same thing with the brand of it could be H&M, which is an inexpensive brand, but you still know what you're getting. And I think especially in the personal brand space, like when people are doing this for themselves, they don't take that time to really define who they are and what feeling they want their customers to create and then building the business around that. So as you grow and as you scale and as you bring more people onto your team, they know that standard, which then lends to customer service also, and they can then fulfill it. So it's taking that time to really design what it is that you want to create. I think that's what people kind of do wrong. I think they they want to just start because we're in this world where everyone's like, just start, just get it out there, just be messy. 100%, I agree. You don't need to be 100% prepared, but you want to at least have like excellence and integrity with what you do. And I think that taking the extra step to develop a plan and build a brand is the only thing that is going to make whatever you're creating be scalable and exitable. Now, granted, some people might not. They might just be like, well, I want to have a podcast and I want to be a coach. And they have no desire to build that or scale it, then that's totally fine. Like you don't need to take the time. But if you really want to take something that, you know, whatever, 10 years down the road, you can get five times EBITDA on and be able to sell it to something else, to another company or merge, then you really need to take the time to design that brand. 
I love that. You use one word there that I think is often overlooked, and that is the feeling. What is the feeling you want somebody to have? When you were giving those examples of H&M or the Ritz-Carlton, there is a very particular feeling that's there that's baked into the DNA of the company. And I think... For me, that really represents what brand is. You know, you get a, you get a feel, even, you know, even Nike, you know, you still have a, a Michael Jordan feeling. You know what I mean? There's, there's still something to that. So I love, I love how you think about that. Well, people, if you think about it, Rob, like people don't buy products, they buy a feeling, right? Like if, if you think about the, the Kia and the Bentley, they're both metal. They both have an engine. They both have tires. Like everything is similar. They're both blue, but one creates a feeling. One for the driver, for the person sitting in it, for the person seeing it. Like that's really the difference. Every single thing that's being marketed well in our world is it's the brand was built first. And like you said, Nike, like I personally am a Nike person because I resonate with the feeling of that brand more so than Lululemon, which is obviously super popular and everybody loves. So there's certain things that it's really about the feeling. And if you can connect that feeling with the customer, then they're going to choose your brand, your product, your service time after time after time. You know, you're making me think about something. I was I was in a Ritz-Carlton, ironically, and I was sitting at the swimming pool and uh, I struck up a small, small talk conversation with this guy and, you know, asked him what he did. He asked him what I did, et cetera. And uh, he, he, it turns out that he, uh, he sells Porsches. And he said, did you ever drive a Porsche before? I said, no, you know, I haven't. I, I haven't. He said, have you, have you ever driven a 911? I said, no, I've never driven a Porsche. He said, well, I tell you what, He said, come by and I will let you have a Porsche for the weekend. You know, uh, now you know I'm getting in trouble, right? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Drive the Porsche for the weekend. And I said, well, what's so special about it? He said, did you ever get in a car where you shifted it and you felt like the car was moving from your chest? Mm. And I said, no. He said, just try it. Every time I got in that car, I literally felt the car shifting like from inside of my body mm-hmm. that for the next 10 years, I bought a 911 from him literally yeah. every year. So I love that. That makes perfect sense to me. Great salesman touch- too, by the way. <laughs> he, I, I know. What do they call that? The puppy dog clothes? Oh, so good. <laughs> yeah, so good. Um, I want to talk a little bit about money mindset because that's an area that is so unconscious for most people and it flies right over their head. How do you help people build a great relationship with money? So for me, I I don't I have no reason to have a great money mindset because of where I came from and how I grew up, but for me that was like a purposeful choice that I knew very quickly. And so I always I'm telling everyone that you you know reading about it, ad- um, adopting a, a practice every morning. Like every morning, I have a money mindset practice, um, making sure that the gratitude comes into play. Like there's probably about five things that I'm always telling people about money mindset and how it's so important. And there's also this other, I think, asterisk that um, we're not maybe talking about enough because. Everyone's like, oh, adopt a money mindset. And I think people think it's to get from like one place to the next. But what they don't realize is that you have to constantly level that up. Because when you get to wherever it is you want to go, and that works for you to get there, you need to expand and be around other people and adopt a different principles to really be able to go up or you're going to get stuck. That's one of the things I really did wrong was I didn't realize that 
in order to get to one level to the next to the next that eventually where you get to is so different than what you're around or what your experience is in life that you really have to purposefully put yourselves in rooms, conversations, places that really just helps you expand and grow even more. So I would say a few things. Always, um, can I recommend a book? Yeah, let me see if I can guess it though. Okay. Um, T. Harvick. Oh, Brilliant. Yes. 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 I think that is such a great place for people to start if they haven't yet. Um, And really just every single morning, you know, like waking up in gratitude for five minutes, because if you're not grateful for what you have, you know, believe this is my belief, whether someone believes this or not, but if you're not grateful for what what you have, and if you're not a good steward of the money that you have now, you're not going to bring more in. Let's talk about, I want to talk about T. Harvecker a little bit. Yeah. So the, the book, just for clarification, that's the author's name is T. Harvecker. And the book is called Money Mindset. Are you reading that book? Do you regularly read that book? You know, it's, it's, it's so interesting to me because it's kind of like, you know, you see somebody who's in great shape running down the side of the road and you know, your brain is like, well, why are you exercising? You look great. <laughs> but, you <Yeah>. know, <laughs> right. So for me, when I'm listening to somebody, you know, who as, who is as successful as you to think about the fact that you still are practicing money mindset is sort of probably mind-boggling for a lot of people that are listening. So what what are you doing currently? You mentioned that you're doing five things. Maybe you can you know name two or three of them um, that you're doing on a daily basis. And are you still reading that book? Because I know a lot of people read it over and over again. Well, that's what, so it's exactly what you just talked about, right? Like, if you're in great shape, you still have to go to the gym. <laughs> like if you run six miles or however far you run every day to, to keep that health, like you don't just do that once and stop and then sit on the couch and eat bonbons. Like, so to me, it's the exact same thing with anything that we're doing for our mind or anything that we're a principle that we're adopting. It's a daily practice, just like you're going to the gym. So I think that's really important to make that that difference so that people know it actually is the same. Like it's the same thing of working that bicep, but you're working your mind. And so for me, yes, I've probably read that book 10 times. And it's not the only book. Like I've read Tony Robbins' uh, financial books, Unshakable, um, his 700-page book (laughs) that he had on finance. Um, You name it. Like there's been, I can't even think of them all off the top of my head, but there's probably been over two dozen books that I've read and I'm always reading something about money. Um, there's another guy, Dave Ramsey. He's incredible with money um, as far as making it really easy for someone to start. So depending on where you know your audience is listening, depending on where you are, it's a great place to start, Total Money Makeover. There's just, it's just like a muscle and you need to be always constantly reading the great people that are that are doing it. So that's definitely one. And yes, I definitely have read that. And there are still principles that I adopt, like the tapping on your brain. I have a millionaire mind. I, the, first, <laughs> the first time I, I listened to it, I was like, oh God, please. Am I really? <laughs> I know. Do I literally have to tap my forehead and say, I have a millionaire mind. Yes. But it is the goofiness of it that actually somehow works. And, and if anybody else is going into that space, it's like, you know what? If what you're doing hasn't got you where you want to go, how about just try it? <laughs> like, just tap yourself on the forehead, read the damn book. Like, if you're not where you want to be already, just try something different. So we're going to bounce around as we uh, as we wrap up. I'm going to ask you some questions that may be some weird questions. So just okay. roll with it. Awesome. Um, <clears throat> what do people often get wrong about you? Hmm. I would say, honestly, the number one thing people... They don't, they don't think much of me. 
when people meet me and they don't know me and they don't actually get to know me, they just think like, oh, she's some like blonde haired little Mm -hmm. girl, you know? Um, So I would say that's probably underestimated. I've been underestimated for my entire life from the time I started out in business at 19, when people walked in and it's like, oh, well, where's where's the owner? Because it's obviously not you, you know? Or, <laughs> or, oh, did you do this with your husband? Or, oh, did you do this with, you know, like everybody always assumes if you're the strong, that it's not really you, that somebody else had to have done all of these things for you or that you had some luck in life in order to get to get to where you are. And that's not the truth. So I would say that that's, that's probably the biggest one. What is a new behavior or a belief in the last fill in the blank, number of years, months, that has significantly improved the quality of your life? Mm. Loving other people starts Mm. with loving yourself. And that's not something that I've been very good at. I've always been really hard on myself. I've always expected so much of myself and not a lot of other people. And so for me, being able to really just be okay with who I am and who I'm not and my mistakes and being able to just love myself with all of its perfections has been something that is very new to me and something that I have to remind myself of daily. There's something beautiful that comes with that and age. Let me tell you, it gets yes. better. <laughs> that's when true. You hit, when you hit your 50s, you get even more in love with yourself because no, you I, just don't give a shit. I hear that. Like I've, I have some friends of mine that are you know, 51 to 53 and they say, they're like, oh girl, they're like, wait till you're 50. They're like, you're not going to give two shits of what you say or what you do. So... <laughs> So funny, you know, I heard somebody said something, I was out to dinner with somebody and they were like, you know, that person's talking about you, right? I said, I'm just happy somebody's still talking about me. <laughs> yeah, that's so good. <laughs> just you glad just, to be on someone's mind, like whatever it is. just don't give a shit. <laughs> okay, what is the one goal that you thought when you achieved it, everything would be better? And then you got it and you're like, ah, that really wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Oh God, I think that's like every goal I've had. Yeah, yeah, it is. (laughs) Honestly, I think every time it's like, Mm. you know, you get there and then you get to that mountain and it's like, oh, and then it's like, you you know, that you cut that proverbial ribbon off and it's like, oh my gosh, is this it? Like I did all of that for this. I would, I mean, it's pretty much every business I've built. It's pretty much, Mm -hmm. you know, I I think everything, if you, if it's not, if it's for you and it's not for someone else or something else or a cause or a mission or something that you're contributing beyond yourself to, I think that that's always the case. I think the only time we aren't going to have that in life is when we are contributing to something beyond ourselves, that we're creating a legacy for something for the world to be better. Um, so every time I've done something that hasn't been contribution-based, I felt that way. But the few times that, um, you know, when I created my nonprofit and the two locations, that's when it's like, okay, that was worth it. That was worth that's it. You, that, was that deep level of fulfillment. Yeah, that's and that's really that's it. Those are the only times. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a great great lesson for people. If you could spend one month anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? I my my instinct is to say Bali, but I have absolutely no reason why, or even if I could be there for a month. But I just it seems like it's just such a peaceful place, and it's been pulling at me for a while to get there. So I would think I'd like to see what it was like to you know, be on the other side of the world for a month. You know, I was just talking to somebody who was there and uh, she said to me, Bali is an interesting place because 
there's a draw that pulls you in and there are people that are there for a certain period of time. And she said, it's, it's like, it's like a mother's womb. It's just protects you and surrounds you and feels beautiful. But mm -hmm. there comes a time where you get spit out and you mm -hmm. have to leave. So it's like this, it's you know, interesting. Yeah. So it's, there's no place like if there are people that are there for like three, four years, they're in love with it. And then all of a sudden, boom, it's wow. like, it's time to go. Yeah. That's which really I cool. thought was real. I never heard anybody. Have describe you been it there? Like nope. No. Nope. I've traveled all over the world, but that is not one of the places I've been to. It's on the list though. And I don't know if I could even be there for a month, but I, you know, that's just like, it sounds like yeah. a really cool place to try and be and just see what everybody talks about. Cause everybody says how amazing it is. So everybody loves it. Yeah. If you can go to one restaurant before you die, where would your last meal be? There is a place in Kenya that you're able to experience the wildlife, like giraffes and lions. Giraffe manor? I think that's it. Yes, mm -hmm. I think that's yeah. it. Um, if I had to pick one, that would that would probably... If it was a restaurant, that would probably have to be it. That's interesting. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? My belief that I believe that I can. When I get my mind around something, there's no stopping me. Because I just believe that it will work and it will happen, and uh, so yeah. So I they call it the tornado. <laughs> the to and guess what? It does. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> what is one thing you're afraid of right now? Not doing everything I was created to do. Like mm. I think that that's one of the things that I often wonder. Like you know, am I supposed to? do more? Am I supposed to, like, that was the whole thing of starting the nonprofit and rescuing more animals and more species and additional locations. Like, I just don't want to get to that point in my life where I'm 80 and I'm looking back and be like, did I have anything left in the tank? Was there mm -hmm. something else that I could have given? Was there somebody else I could have helped? Um, yeah, I'd have to say that was it. I love it. Um, other than the, uh, the millionaire mindset, what book have you reread the most or re-listened to? Think and Grow Rich. Hmm. I have read that book more than any other book. Um, and I would say uh, on, on easily, maybe 20 times. That has probably been the number one book that was the most influential in my life. That's interesting. That is, that is definitely the one that comes up a lot. The other one that comes up a lot is uh, Man's Search for Meaning. Mm, um, I've read that, yeah. Yeah, that's the other one. Th those two books are the two that come up when I ask that question. Magic of Thinking Big, is that another one? Uh, yeah, by Schwartz. That's yeah, a great that's book. another good one too. Um, what is your guilty pleasure? Hmm. <laughs> this says this, this is pathetic guilty pleasure, but I, I'm between two. Iced tea. <laughs> mm -hmm. I I love iced tea like way mm -hmm. too much, and massages. Mm -hmm. I love massages. That's interesting. Yeah. If you had to give a TED talk on nothing that you're known for, nothing that you speak about, it could be on anything that you have a passion for, what would it be about? Hmm. So we have to pull dogs out of it and we have to pull business I was going to say, yeah, do you have to pull business and dogs and animals mm -hmm. and everything? Yeah. What about like, can it be mindset related or belief? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, if I had to do a TED talk on none of those other things, I would have to say it would have to be on belief. It would have to be on, you know, knowing that whatever you believe that you can do, you can, asterisks, as long as you can do the work to get there. Like, and, and it goes probably a little deeper than that, like trusting your instinct, like being able to identify the instinct that 
internal guidance or that compass that we've all been given and really dial into it because I think that's been such a guiding force for me. It's not knowing that, I mean, I'm not, I'm not smart. I'm not connected. Like I've said all of those things. Like I was not that smart. I was not that connected. I did not have some lot in life or some, you know, great situation to have done the, the few things that I have done, but it's more about just having the relentless belief and then following that internal guidance and, and relying on it more than my intellect. And I think when we do that, that's really what gets us down the right path when we're able to pause and think, you know, if I don't choose right here at this fork in the road of how I want my life to do, how I want my life to go, I'm going to go down this unconscious path and I'm going to allow these circumstances to dictate my life rather than me choose to dictate it. Amazing. So how does one wind up dating a divorce coach and what the hell is a divorce coach? (laughs) So... He is amazing. Like you say, like, I don't know. It's like, really, it is extremely difficult to date me. I get that. He's an Enneagram. Is that how you say it? He's an Enneagram nine, which helps a lot. <laughs> so he is a judge and an attorney and he started doing divorce coaching. And because he really saw that like his, he can only practice in Pennsylvania because that's where he's licensed, but he could mm-hmm. see that there were all these other people across the country that were going through divorces and in custody battles and all of the pain that goes through it because of him going through his own. And he used his psychology background mixed with his law degree to really be able to help people um, go through one of the most painful times of our, you know, of our lives. Like anyone that's been divorced, that's listening to this, like it's, it's horrible. It's extremely painful. And the loss, especially if you have kids related and, um, into that whole thing. So that's how he started doing that. But um, yeah, I don't, you'd have to interview him <laughs> to see how, it's, how it is to I actually to think me. I might because I think it's, <laughs> I think it's a fascinating, a fascinating subject. Um, and you could, you could also mention to him when you talk to him, I have, I, ironically, I almost, I almost fell out of my chair when I was doing my research because there is another divorce coach. I don't know if you know much about divorce coaches, but I had two of them in the same day come to me. Well, one while I was researching you and the other one um, reached out to me. There's a guy named James Sexton, S-E-X-T-O-N, who wrote a book on Mm. divorce coaching and Lewis Howes interviewed him. So um, it's like, I never heard of the word divorce coach and I had two of them in the same day today, which is weird because I'm very, I'm very happily married, but that's a, it's an interesting, interesting thing. Well, it's such a need, you know, cause anybody that's, like I said, anyone's going through that painful time and no, I did not meet him because he was my divorce coach. (laughs) So just in case that's going through anyone's mind, no, that was not how I met him. We are, um, we actually, you know, are from the same town back in Mm. Pennsylvania. So we've, my family's, my dad's auto mechanic shop, it's kind of crazy, was across from his dad's chiropractic clinic. And so his dad adjusted me from the time I was six months old and have just always known of each other. Um, but it wasn't until we went through our own divorces that we actually get together. So, Well, that's even more interesting for me because I was a chiropractor for 25 years. I do know that. And I was married to a chiropractor for... No. Over, yes, I was. Yes, oh, I was. So imagine candy, candy. imagine that's so imagine him waking up with me having 25 things to do. <laughs> it's no. in Yes. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah. Okay, what a tangled web we weave. Okay. <laughs> so, um last question, what one question do you have for me? Mhm. What made you leave your practice to completely go a different way? 
After 25 years of every single morning um, having somebody say, my neck hurts, my back hurts, my neck hurts, my back hurts, all day long for 25 years, I was going to shoot myself in the head. Mm. One, two, um, I'm entrepreneurial by nature. I have a lot of projects and a lot of things that I want to work on. And I just did not like t- being tied to my chiropractic table. And the, the, uh, the other alternative was to open up multiple offices, mm, which I right. did, but I didn't enjoy that. Mm-hmm. I would rather be in another business than being in uh, healthcare because it's, the laws are changing so much, so quickly. Reimbursement is so, you know, it used to be years ago, you know, I billed a hundred dollars for something I got paid for it. Right. Now I've got, you know, I've got to send in, you know, 22 pages of notes. Um, and I've got somebody in a cubicle that's evaluating every decision I make. And it, just, and then they can you know, come back and ask you for it back. And they, well, that that's the other thing. <laughs> that's I mean, the whole thing. Like, yeah. I never had this happen, but the the challenge now, I get phone calls from friends where you know they'll get approved for you know twenty visits, and mm-hmm. um, they'll do twenty visits, and then they'll you know retroactively two or three years later they'll say, well, you know, we paid you for those twenty, but you know, a post audit showed that you really should have been able to solve the case in fifteen. Right. So we want we want you to pay back those five visits, which is not a big deal, except when they do it for two hundred patients over That's a right. five five year period. It's a hundred grand. You know, yeah. It's a hundred grand. Yeah. yeah. So you know, I just, it was not, it was something that I wasn't interested anymore in. Well listen, this has been fascinating. Do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? Mm. I would just say the only thing is if you're listening to this and wherever you are at the place that you're in in your life and you want to go to that next level, you want to go, you know, just to get to that next place of where you feel like you're being called, just do it. Go all in. I would I would rather put it all out there and risk it all than to ever have the fear of regret. So any fear that you have of going after it will not outweigh regret. So just remember that as you're going forward. I love that. And Candy, we will link up all of your services in the show notes so people can get in touch with you um, if they like what they heard, which I know they will. So thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so grateful. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.